All right, greetings once again, Fremont E-Free Church. We are back here in the recording studio, fourth grade Sunday school, fifth grade. I always get free of what room we're in. But anyway, we're in a room, and we're talking about the Bible. So that's really the important thing. We're talking about Luke 1, 67 to 79 this morning, Zechariah's prophecy. Uh, we are week two of our Advent series, Four Songs in the Gospel of Luke. So we had Mary's song last week, Zechariah's song this week. We have the angels' song next week, and then the Sunday after Christmas will be Simeon's song. So, all that to say, this week is Zechariah's song as we are preparing our hearts uh, to to focus on the advent of Christ, Christ's coming, and, and looking forward to his second coming. Uh, our passage this week was Zechariah singing this song, which had a obviously a great deal of Old Testament prophecy to it, a lot of Old Testament connections. But uh, again, as always, I think the best place to start is just by by asking you, Jim, what, what is it that God was doing in your heart through this passage, and, and how have you been, what have you been chewing on the last 24 hours? Yeah, I think one of the things that really stood out to me yesterday was just bringing out from this passage that, that Zachariah is focused on Jesus and not his son, not on John the Baptist in this song. You know, that, that even, even as I was just kind of looking at, at the passage itself, the context was like in verse 66, where it says, And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then shall this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So, like, so wow, there's this clear, like, what is this John the Baptist going to be? And then Zechariah's songs come out, and it's not about the child and what he shall be until the very end. Right. But up until that point, everything's all about Jesus. Like, Zechariah is not focusing on his son but is instead focusing on the coming of the Christ instead. And that does just like, I don't know if I'd really thought of it that way before to go, wow, Zachariah is very Christ-centric at this point and and just really Jesus-focused here and is totally deflecting off of really a lot of things with his own son. Now, he doesn't totally ignore John the Baptist, right? And you Mm -hmm. pointed that out. But a vast majority of what he's talking about is Jesus. And you made the the comment about... um, how Zachariah was just like John the Baptist and, you know, deflecting off of himself and focusing on Jesus. And, and to make that connection just really made me think and go, wow, that's like, that was a good message for me to hear. I mean, I'll just be honest. There's a lot of times in my life where like, I, I, um, really like the approval of man, right? Which means I, you know, like attention on myself. Right. Um, and to, whenever I hear a message of looking at people that deflect attention off of themselves and put it on Christ instead is a, is a message I just need to hear. My heart needs to hear that yeah. because I need to practice that more. I need to be more about that. And mm. so that was just, that was just a really, really good reminder for me. Mm. Yeah, that is helpful to think. I mean, I think John the Baptist is a fascinating character for a lot of reasons, but mostly he he realizes that his. If he, I mean, it's all it's easy for us to read the the biblical accounts and think, oh yeah, of course John the Baptist pointed to Jesus. Well, what else was he going to do? But to put yourself in John the Baptist's shoes is a totally different story, right? That you have people coming to you and gathering around you and saying, you you're great, like we want to follow you, and he's like, no, I, I must become less, he must become more. And, and to think that way is, is pretty remarkable. And so Zechariah, um, I, I think, is definitely modeling that here. 
you know, I, I didn't get a chance to talk about this yesterday just because there's always only so much you can say in a sermon. Right. But I think Zechariah, like what happens here with Zechariah is actually pretty encouraging. Because if you think about the context of Zechariah's story in Luke, so the at first when the birth of John the Baptist uh, is foretold, Zechariah is skeptical, right? He He kind of... He asked the question, well, how, how do we know this? And, and eventually he can't talk because of it. So he's silenced, right? He's this priest, and the angel comes to him, and he's just kind of, I, I, I don't know, doubting maybe, or he doesn't have faith to understand how this is going to work out. And so because of that, he can't talk, right? So there's definitely a moment where you say, okay, you know, Zechariah, this, this isn't really great on his part, um, to the point that God silences him, right? So right. at the very least, I mean, we could all say, well, maybe we would have handled it the same way as Zechariah did. Maybe that's true, but at the same time, like, God keeps him from talking. Right. But, like, what I appreciate, and this is what I didn't get to, is that there is almost a little bit of a restoration here, right? Like, mm. that Zechariah, like, for a while, like, he was living in doubt, and he was living in fear, or whatever, you know, I, I don't know, he was, he was not trusting, and so he's silenced, but but he learns something in that. And, and now, like, it, it, when he gets the opportunity and, and they're asking, what's the child's name? He's like, John is his name, right? Like, I love that section. And then Zechariah starts talking. And what does Zechariah do? He points clearly to the Christ. So the reason I bring all that up is to say this, like, just because a person has messed up in the past or maybe they've, they've had doubts in the past or they haven't been where they are, that doesn't mean they're unusable in the future. Right. And I think Zechariah's story is encouraging in that way that – yeah, he he kind of he kind of didn't handle it right at first, but that doesn't mean that he didn't get there eventually. And praise God that that's that's possible for all of us, right? There may be things that we have not handled right in the past, or that we've blown, or that we just haven't done well. But that doesn't mean that we're we're um, for all time unable to be used by God. I, I think God uses Zechariah powerfully here, despite the fact that Zechariah's story doesn't start the best in Luke. And to me, that's encouraging. Um, and, and, you know, wherever you are as, as a listener and, and whatever things that you struggle with in the past, that doesn't mean that God can't use you in the future. Um, so I think, I think Zechariah's story was encouraging to me for that reason also. Right. And to think about the fact that Zechariah was probably mute for nine months, right? So he had a lot of time to think, you know, these are, I don't know if these are the first words out of his mouth, you know, after you know, after he was able to speak again, but obviously this is something that he was chewing on for nine months, right? That, that what is, what is coming like, and so you can see and think about, Hmm, this is what was going on in Zachariah over that time period. Right. Right. That you can see. Yeah. He should have known better, but yet God, and it does say that he was filled with the Holy spirit to say these things. So obviously the spirit was working in him. Right. Um, to, to say these things, and the fact that the Holy Spirit would still work in him despite himself is encouraging, right? Yeah, absolutely. So let me ask you this. Like, the interesting thing about Luke, and, and obviously we're just focusing on these four songs, but Luke kind of ping-pongs back and forth between John the Baptist and Jesus. Right. So at the beginning, you have the birth of John the Baptist foretold, and then the birth of Jesus is foretold. Then you have... Uh, this section where Mary visits Elizabeth and it relates to John the Baptist and Mary sings her praise and you have the birth of John the Baptist and then you have the Zechariah's prophecy and then you have the birth of Christ. Like, so like, I, th I think for us, let, let, let me, let me put it this way. As we think about the Christmas story and as we tell our kids the Christmas story right. in general, 
I think John the Baptist is not talked about at all. Hmm. Um, we talk about Jesus and his birth, hmm. but that's not the way the Gospels approach it. Like they they throw John the Baptist in the mix pretty regularly. So my my question is like, why why is the Bible so focused on John the Baptist? Now, there might be a side question: Why do we ignore John the Baptist? But that's not really the question I'm asking because I'm trying to get at like, what is the value of John the Baptist? Like why why does he play such a prominent role? in these birth accounts of Christ. Um, and again, I would just I would put that in contrast with, like when we share the Christmas story, John the Baptist is hardly ever talked about. So why does the right. Bible focus on him so much when we are so prone to neglect him? You know, I've always thought Luke 1 and, and 2, or especially Luke 1, um, is really interesting uh, because... And I wonder if, if Luke did this on purpose, maybe a little bit, because before, you know, before the Gospels, before this moment in history, God has been silent for 400 years, right? Right. There's been no word from God. There's been no mighty miracles. There's been no prophets. There's been nothing. Right. And then, so to go 400 years of nothing, and then you hit Luke 1, and it's like God is just... Like, boom, boom, boom. He's on the scene. He's speaking. They're prophesying. The spirit is moving. All these signs are happening. And it's like it's like this total, like, 180 shift of God doing absolutely nothing to now God has just burst on the scene and is doing all of these incredible things. Right. Um, so I wonder if that's a little bit of that. But I do think, you know, verse 76, uh, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the most high and you'll go before the Lord to prepare his way. I mean, that's a pretty big indicator that the Christ is coming, right? right. Is this messenger who's going to come and prepare the way of Christ. So to me, I would think John the Baptist here at this moment is significant because it's validifying Jesus and who he is because you need this forerunner to proclaim that Jesus, that the Christ has come. And if you don't have that forerunner, then you don't have Christ yet at that point. So I do think that there is some Old Testament prophecy being fulfilled here that in probably in the mind of the Jewish reader, um, in the cultural context of this day, was very, very significant for them to see and to know. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And it probably um, speaks to how, again, maybe there's some illiteracy for us as it relates to the Old Testament that we would not think it's a big deal to talk about John the Baptist when when they read Malachi 3, 1 probably, or they're familiar with Malachi 3 or even Malachi 4, the Elijah who will come before, because then later on Jesus ties that Elijah prophecy to John the Baptist as right. well. I think, um, you know, we, we just tend to discount the role of prophecy and, and why it matters maybe. And so we don't bring up John the Baptist because we just think, well, you know, prophecy is not that big a deal. It was fulfilled, but that's that's not the way they thought about it, right? And that's not the I, maybe it speaks to our just neglect of the Old Testament in general that we would not think it's kind of a big deal to point out that there had to be this forerunner who's coming beforehand to prepare the way of the Lord. John the Baptist is that guy, and John the Baptist on the scene means that the messianic age is now commenced, and therefore the Savior's on the way, right? Like, right. And so I think probably for someone who's familiar with the Old Testament to read about this forerunners like oh, okay all right something's coming right like but because right. we tend to neglect old testament in general like we don't think that way and we just think well sure. this is kind of a weird side story like let's get to the real meat of the story which is Jesus but i, I think in in Luke's mind and in the gospel writer's mind the two aren't disconnected right like they're part right. of the same story which is that God is fulfilling his promises made in the old testament right. 
I, you know, I think it's right to point out that in the Zechariah's prophecy, really the focus is on what God's doing, like, and what God is doing in sending Jesus. In other words, like, I, I think it's good for us to to focus on Jesus is the Christ, like that's a legitimate focus of this passage. But ultimately, I think the focus is on God fulfilling his promises made in the Old Testament through Jesus. And, and maybe that's a nuance there, but I think it's just worth saying like God, is, God has this unfolding plan that's taking place all the way back from Genesis. And John the Baptist is part of that plan too. Like it, it's this plan of unfolding prophecy, right? Like where God promises these things are going to pass and they come to pass. And John the Baptist is part of that. And so I think perhaps it speaks to our downplaying of prophecy or a downplaying of the connection between the Old and the New Testament that we just don't think John the Baptist is that big a deal. Right, right. And yeah, it does downplay, you know, this here. How do we know that Jesus is the Christ? Well, this is a great evidence. And I don't think we talk about that very much as a great evidence of how we can show that Jesus is the Christ, because there was a forerunner who came that was <laughs> that was told of, and that, and that was fulfilled, you know? And so you could say, okay, here's an evidence from Scripture that shows us that Jesus is, is the Christ. Yeah. No, that's good. Okay, so uh, I'll say something else that stuck out to me that I'd like to just think through here a little bit is this, this phrase in verse 78, I think I found myself thinking about this a lot this last week um, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. And so he's, he's talking about there will be this prophet of the Most High who will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Hmm. Um, so I, I know that you've, you've talked about this book, Gentle and Lowly, that you've read and that I've read and that we've both been impacted by. But I guess, I guess maybe to put it in question form, like, why is it that when we think of God, we do not think of tender mercy? And, and what is the danger in not thinking of God as tender and merciful? Like, I mean, if, if, if I'm just being honest, in my growing up years, like, my conception of God was not one of tender mercy. And maybe that speaks to my heart and where I run. But I, I think a lot of people would not associate God with tender mercy, um, now, obviously, there's a danger that we could emphasize that to the exclusion of his holy justice, and maybe there are some people who do that, but I don't know. Maybe maybe it's just me, but why do we not tend to run towards this idea that God is tender and merciful, and, and why is that dangerous? Well, I think it's dangerous because it keeps us from coming to God. I think if we saw God as someone with tender mercy, our more natural inclination would be to want to run to him instead of run away from him. Right. So I think that's the danger, and that's probably the spiritual battle that's taking place, right? Sure. Um, you know, I think that, you know, a couple of things I would say is one, I think that that's just our fallen nature, is that we've got a, a, a skewed version of God. I mean, Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Their first reaction is to hide from God. You know, they don't see God as someone with tender mercy. They see him as someone that we need to hide from. And I think that's still in us today. Right. And I think that's in our spiritual DNA. Um, even even now, even now as, as redeemed followers of Christ, I still think there's something within our sinful fallen nature that naturally does not see God that way because it, we're just still affected by the fall. Um, and then I think there's a spiritual battle where we have an enemy that doesn't want us to see God in that way either. Right. right. And so I do think that there's a couple of things that, that I would say that we're fighting against um, in, in seeing God in this way. 
that that he is someone that that is this this tender mercy and i think that's a battle that we have to fight to see him for who he really is um in that way i mean i was just reading in in luke or not in luke in mark this morning where where jesus talked about uh where he talked about his his who are who are his mothers and his brothers right right you know whoever does the will of god he is my brother and my sister and my mother right like and i just thought about that i was like wow that is a really close family dynamic relationship that jesus is saying about his people right you know he's not saying hey you're my servant or you know you know um or you're on my good side or or even you're my friend he says no you're my you're my family you know this is how relationally i see you i see you as family and 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 I know that maybe there's a lot of people that don't have a healthy family dynamic, but that's not what Jesus is saying when he says that, right? What he's saying is, I want to see, I want you to see how close you are to me, right? Uh, and and when Jesus is the one speaking that, you realize your context of family totally changes at that point too, right? I think the challenge for us when it comes to rightly understanding God is that we often project who we are onto God, and so or who the people we know are unto God. And so the idea that he could be righteously angry towards sin, and to the point that, you know, I, I mentioned Revelation 6 yesterday, but it, my, my son and I have been reading through Revelation together this week, and it's it's been staggering to me, like, how seriously he takes sin. Like, the right. pun, like there's, there's points in Revelation where people are longing to die, and they can't die, like, because they're so terrified of God's wrath. And yet at the same time that he could be tender and merciful like this, like I think it's just hard for us to square those things together. And so what ends up happening is we invariably run to one end of the spectrum or the other and not let just Scripture speak for itself who God is. Um, you know, I, I, people, I've heard people say before things like, well, you know, the, the God I believe in wouldn't send people to hell. Well, the God you believe in doesn't exist, like, because that's the God that we see in Scripture. Like, but at the same time, the God we see in Scripture is tender and merciful. And I think that book, Gentle and Lowly, makes a pretty persuasive argument that, that Jesus' primary way of identifying himself to us is as gentle and lowly. And so I guess what I'm saying is, like, I think the challenge for us as it relates to God is we have to let him be who he is and not make him out to be something that we think he should be or that we think he's like us. And so... I, I don't know. I, I was greatly comforted this week to think that his disposition towards his people is one of tender mercy. Um, now, that the the challenge of that is to think this tender, merciful God is the same one who is holy and just and righteous. Um, but both are true, and I think we have to be able to embrace both of those and, and to realize, like, fortunately for us, if we're in Christ, the the righteous wrath was satisfied. Um, and, and so we don't have to fear that anymore. And I, I don't know, like, I didn't really get into this a whole lot, like, but verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Well, it's really interesting to ask the question, like, what is it that they're not fearing there? Um, I don't know. Like, I, I tend to think maybe it's the enemies that they don't have to, ser- they don't have to be inf- afraid of their enemies anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I think mm-hmm. that's maybe, that's probably my initial lean, but right. maybe it's also they don't have to be afraid of his righteous wrath. Now, that may not be what this passage is saying. I think we could say that in a maybe larger scope, that we don't have to be afraid of his righteous wrath anymore because Christ took it for us and we're in Christ. But I think here it's maybe enemies. All that to say, like, I do think as followers of Christ, like we need to realize like his disposition towards us is one of tender mercy. And we, we can't 
we can't just think of God as, you know, the like I said yesterday, the cosmic cop who's just out there behind the speed trap waiting to get us. No, he, he has a tender mercy towards us. And I think it's important that we see him that way and not make him into something that Scripture doesn't make him out to be. Right, right. And, you know, you do see over and over in Scripture uh, where it talks about, you know, Jesus looked and had compassion on the crowd. You know, that he is someone that was, you know, deeply concerned for people. And, I mean, Jesus has the heart of the Father, right? And so so I do think it is important when we read Scripture and we see things like that, that I think those are good reminders to help, like, reorient our 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 view of God and who he is to say, yes, he is someone that does have tender mercy and to celebrate that. And I do think that changes how we relate to him, uh, in coming to him and, and, and he wants us to come to him. And so I think remembering those things are really important. Yeah. And I, I do think it's important that we are, you know, we're seeing the whole counsel of God. And so, right. you know, we shouldn't make a whole theology out of just verse 78 and take it apart from say revelation six, right? Like we have to be able to say he is all these things at the same time that he's holy and just and righteous and full of anger towards sin, righteous anger towards sin. And at the same time, he's gentle and lowly and he's tender and merciful. And, and again, I think the challenge for us is we just don't know people who are like that. We're not like that. And so right. it's hard for us to figure out like, how can God be all these things at the same time? Right. But he is. Right. And I think the the important thing is that we let scripture speak for itself and let well, more importantly let God speak for himself. This is right. who he reveals himself as and so we have to be willing to say okay. Like this may not square up with what my picture looks like but I need to let my my picture be conformed to the word of God. Right. And not try to conform the word of God to my picture. Right. And, and I think the good news is because of the work of Christ and his people, this is how we know God. We know God in his tender mercies, right? And that's why I think we don't have to fear, because I don't think we have to fear, we don't have to fear that judgment. We don't have to fear that wrath, because Jesus took that judgment and that wrath for us. And so what are we left with? We're left with the, with the tender mercies that God has given. Now, is there going to be consequences if, if we make, you know, bad choices. Yeah. But it's the tender mercies of God that's going to discipline us in those things right. and to work those things for our good. And, and so to keep that in mind too, that any sort of discipline that we're receiving from God is not judgment in wrath, but it's loving correction. And that's part of his tender mercies, right? Yeah. So one, one question I want us to think about, like we, we've often talked about the connection between the old Testament and new Testament. And clearly this, this passage is heavy on Old Testament, New Testament connections. Um, so I'm not going to make a long argument here as to why we need to be familiar with the Old Testament. I think that's right. kind of assumed in the New Testament. But I do want to ask the question, like, let's say there's a person in our congregation who says, you know, I'm, I, I am pretty illiterate about the Old Testament, but I don't want it to stay that way because I do want to understand the connections better. I just don't even know where to start um, because I, I don't know what's going on with the leprosy laws in Leviticus, or I don't know, you know, why Joshua spends all this time talking about the land or, you know, all these other things that we could ask about. I don't understand what the minor prophets are doing. Like, I don't understand what's going on. Like, so to the person in our congregation or not in our congregation, whoever's listening to this, who's saying, you know, I, I don't need to be persuaded that the old Testament, new Testament are important. I just don't know where to start with the old Testament. What would be your encouragement to that person? 
You know, so I always like I always like Bible reading plans that have you read a little bit of the Old Testament, a little bit of the New Testament together at the same time. Because I think that, because here's what I found. There have been times that I'm reading something in the Old Testament, and then I flip over and read in the New Testament. I'm like, oh my goodness, these two things that I just read actually connect. Yeah. So I think that's helpful. helpful. Like sometimes I think there's people that say, I'm going to read straight through the Bible. I mean, you could, you could do that. But I think when you're in both Testaments at the same time, you actually start to make some connections and you can start to see some things. And maybe it's not that day, but maybe it's a couple of weeks later that you read something in the Old Testament and it triggers, I just read something like that in the Old Testament a couple of weeks ago. Um, and so that's what I think, like practically, that was something I would do. And and I know that, I think the thing about the Old Testament is that can be so intimidating that it's so big, right? It's, sure. There's so much content compared to the New Testament. And so I think there's this encouragement to say, just don't let that, like, don't let that intimidate you. Like, to say you're not going to get reading everything in the Old Testament the first time you go through it. Right. But to to say, you know what, uh, you know, be, be diligent. Be diligent to say, you know what, I want to, like... Like, and I think there's even somewhere where, where, like, if you go into the New Testament saying, okay, I want to look to see where I can see Jesus today. Mm-hmm. Now, he's not going to be over every rock of every verse, um, but he's there. And if you go with the mindset of saying, where can I see Jesus today? Like, I mean, I mean I'm in Leviticus right now. Um, mm-hmm. And that's that's some tough sledding mm-hmm. to go through. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, every time I read about all these sacrifices, I go, man, Jesus, one sacrifice covered all of this mm-hmm. all of it you know today i'm reading about everything that the priests have to do to consecrate themselves like why because they were so unclean and yet jesus didn't have to do any of that like when i read the old testament i grow in appreciation because i'm like well jesus fulfilled that jesus took care of that like in one sacrifice jesus did all of this that these chapters spend forever talking about um, and so it just like, it heightens my appreciation for Jesus when I read a lot of the laws and the sacrifices because Jesus fulfilled those. Sure. Yeah. I think, I think the encouragement is you don't have to understand every last thing that happened in the old Testament to benefit from reading it. Um, right. by that, I mean, it's okay to go through and be like, I'm not sure what's happening here, but I do want to, you know, like I think about reading books this way, like. I'm not going to remember every last thing I read about book. I'm talking about just general books here, not the Bible, right? Like if I open a book and I'm reading about some whatever topic, you know, I, I don't know. We'll say salvation. Like um, there might be one or two things I really glean and learn from that book. Now, if I were to go back and read it again, there might be one or two more. But my point is I'm not going to remember every last thing. And that's okay. Like it's still worth reading. Like in the same way I would say, you know, you may read through Leviticus and maybe there's only a few things you learn. That's okay. Like... Because next time you read it, there might be more. And and actually, the Word of God is different than other books in that it is living and active, right? Like, And so there might be things that like you read next time, you're like, okay, I, reading through Leviticus this this year, there's only a couple things I got. But you're starting to see the pieces more. And the more you the more you familiarize yourself, the more the pieces will start to become alive, right? Like, So I'll just give an example because I brought this one up yesterday with the laws of leprosy. Um, you read that and you think, okay, well, what, why are we spending two or three chapters talking about rooms and leprosy? And, you know, if there's signs of leprosy in the house, you have to do this or that. Like, it's like, what is going on here? Um, but then actually you come to the New Testament and you realize, okay, there are all these laws that were put in place about leprosy. And Jesus shows up and 
he actually touches the person who has leprosy. Breaks all the rules. Breaks all the rules. But in that moment, he's showing like that his holiness is such that the, the uncleanliness doesn't affect him. Rather, right. his holiness overwhelms the uncleanliness, right. uncleanliness, right? Like that's really powerful if you understand the Old Testament laws about leprosy. Like to understand, okay, Jesus isn't just touching a sick person. That's true. But he's touching this person that everyone else in society would have run away from as fast as possible. And, and you can't understand that unless you've read Leviticus to know all these laws that were in place. Like, why would no one else want to be with this person? Why, would, why is it such a big deal that Jesus would touch this person? Well, it's because of all those laws. And so I'm just using that as an example to say, like, the more we understand the Old Testament, the more we can start to, like, and I'm not saying it's going to come all at once. I think it's a lifelong journey, right? And, and I'll be the first to tell you, like, even though we preached on some of the minor prophets a couple of years ago, I'm still not sure that I could really give you a succinct summary of what's going on in Nahum. Um, now, I think you actually preached both sermons in Nahum, so maybe you could give us a succinct summary. But the point is, like, just because we've done it once doesn't mean we become masters of it. But I think the more we just kind of keep plugging away and say, you know, I, I don't know if there's a, I don't know if I understand everything going on here, but there's some things I can glean from this that will help me down the road. And more than that, are beneficial just themselves, too. So I guess my encouragement is, like, I think what you said is wise. Like, balance it out with some New Testament reading. That's good. Um, find, find a good Bible reading plan that has a little Old Testament, a little New Testament, and maybe even one that kind of helps you chronologically connect the dots a little bit. Like, you know, if you're reading Leviticus, you know, Leviticus at the same time as Hebrews, there's some powerful connections sometimes, and some Bible reading plans will do that for you. But all that to say, like, just keep plugging away, and hopefully over time the connections will start to come for you. Because I, I do think they're everywhere, and Zechariah is actually helping us to see some of that in this song. And so I guess I just want to say, let's, let's not throw out the Old Testament. Let's realize it is helpful. And although there are things that obviously don't apply in the same way anymore because Christ fulfilled the law, like we have to say that. Like Obviously, the, we read the Old Testament differently now in light of Christ's coming. That's for sure. But it still is valuable because it helps us understand what Christ was fulfilling and what he was doing. Right. I mean, I was just even like, I just, when I finished up reading Exodus and thinking about these people wandering in the desert for 40 years and they're always complaining about food. And then I was thinking about Jesus and like, okay, so he spent 40 days in the desert and he was tempted to turn rocks into bread so he could eat. And he said, no. Right. And I was just like, wow, what a contrast to see these people whined all the time. And then that Jesus was totally content that he was actually able to say no. Right. Um, it was just like, like that was a connection that I hadn't really thought about before, but I was just really kind of thinking about that this time around. Cause you're right. Every time you read the old Testament, you're going to see new and different things. And, and cause there is, it is rich and there is a lot to see there. And, yeah, and on the other end, I would just say, like, if you read through 10 chapters in Leviticus and you're like, I don't know if I got anything from it, that that happens sometimes. Right. Like, my point is just keep plugging away, too, right? Like, right. there is a richness to it that I think if we keep digging, eventually some of that will bubble to the surface. Right. But at the same time, like, hey, let's, it's okay to be realistic about our finiteness, like, that we don't always understand everything, and we just have to keep plugging away. Absolutely. So, no doubt. All right. Well, I think that's that's enough for today. So Luke 2, 8 to 14 is our passage next week. The song itself is actually only verse 14, but this is a familiar passage of Scripture, um, and I think it will be a good one for the Sunday before Christmas and as we prepare our hearts to celebrate the, the amazing truth that Jesus took on flesh and eventually lived a perfect life, died on the cross, 
rose from the dead, seated at the right hand of God and will come again. That's an amazing thing. And I think we don't ever want to lose sight of that. In fact, one of the great values of the Christmas season is that we actually stop and slow down to consider something that we've considered a lot of times before, but we just need to be reminded it's still true. So all that say, looking forward to next week. Uh, in the meantime, keep looking up and keep looking to the Word of God.